News Power Hour. What a warm welcome to the Power Hour, and uh, once again, a congratulations to our partners at High FM on celebrating today's bar mitzvah. 13 years in business, they only gave them six months, most people. Congratulations, Kathy and your team. Talking about uh, giving them time, uh, when Jacob Zuma was asked how long the ANC would be running South Africa, he said until the second coming. Uh, what he meant was forever. Well, that doesn't seem to be the case anymore. We've got the official announcement tonight of the election results, but the ANC's numbers down dramatically. It certainly won't be running, and not on its own anyway, any of the major metros in South Africa. What a turn up for the books. As far as our books are concerned, well, we've got the inimitable Pit Fulion from Counterpoint giving us his uh, unique insights tonight. Justin Rowe Roberts spoke with him. Justin, uh, Pit on form as usual? On form, lots of hype on social media around the 500,000 investment challenge, Pit Fulion versus Magnus Haystack. And just as a result, there was a lot of news with regards to a lot of Pitt's companies within the Counterpoint Value Fund. Anglo-American is one of their top holdings. Mark Katafani uh, is retiring uh, middle th- midway through 2022. And MTN, um, Pitt's biggest holding in the Counterpoint Value Fund, they posted an upbeat trading update. The, st- the stock is up 7% today, and he goes through the drivers and why, why that is the case. Can't wait to hear that one. Uh, then I did go along today to the High FM uh, 13th anniversary. It was great fun in the Norwood Shopping Center. They had a, uh, or the station, and you're listening. So many people are listening to it on the station right now. It was a wonderful radiothon and the uh, community opening their hearts and supporting uh, this worthy cause. But also earlier today, I spoke with another of our partners, and that's in Namibia. Gary Stribble interviewed me. So what we're going to do is we're going to actually run that interview because he gives, uh, he asks the questions, I guess, that we often talk about here uh, on what are the major news stories of the day, which we're going to be picking up in just a moment uh, from Jared Neves on the uh, what the business community are uh, accessing. But I think you'll find that quite interesting. And then earlier in the week, I participated in a, webinar with the Bureau for Investigative Journalists. Uh, It's to do with a podcast smokescreen. We've been running teasers on the podcast and, in fact, an interview with the international editor of the Bureau for Investigative Journalists. And that uh, will give you a little taste of that webinar in a little while. Also, uh, coming up tonight, we'll be hearing from our partners at the Wall Street Journal. And then, uh, Nadia, our colleague in the UK, Linda van Tilburg, has got a very interesting story that is going to close off the show this evening. Yeah, she spoke to Jürgens van Lochrenberg about uh, his company, Blue Green Technologies, and the way that they actually cleaned up the Rudderplatt Dam. And very cool anecdotal stories, fishermen actually using Vaseline so that they didn't get exposed to the toxins that were in the water and these things are no longer a problem because of the actions. So it's, it's a good story to listen to. Isn't that a lovely story? And it's nice to hear that uh, the, the many South Africans doing fantastic things to make our country a better place. Well, let's uh, speak to Jared now and find out if uh, the business community is also feeling open-hearted today on a day when I must tell you, living in Johannesburg, I'm feeling Uh, much more positive about the future, Jared, given the election results. We could have a change in government, or at least we're not going to have one party who's going to just be deciding on its own uh, how to abuse the the residents because it can. Uh, What are the community actually focusing on today? So the most access stories on the business platforms on our website, business.com, 500,000 Rand Investment Challenge, Magnus Haystick versus Pete Fillion. Election 2021, voter turnout down 24% hits ANC and DA, helps newcomers and smaller parties. 
And Sastria's incompetence has hardworking essays, essay citizens contemplating their future in our once beautiful country with the best read stories. On Business TV on YouTube, Spa is the least overvalued essay food retailer. That's an interview with Jean-Pierre Fester. Yesterday's flash briefing and Inside Tobacco, unraveling BAT's investigation with the most watched videos. And on Business Radio on Spotify, Christmas comes early as global markets saw higher in October. That's Corian Capital's David Bacher in review. Yesterday's Power Hour and Net One Bets Big on SA Informal Economy are the most listened to podcasts. Rightrock believes that with every change in life comes opportunity and the markets aren't any different. The daily movement in the markets means change for us all, sometimes small, sometimes big. This daily market report is made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Nadia Swat has got the news headlines for us today. Nadia? With 97% of the ballots counted, the Democratic Alliance and Action SA, together with support of natural allies, appear to have won sufficient votes to take control of Johannesburg and Trane, South Africa's commercial heartland and its capital city. Critically, the business-friendly political parties appeared to have secured enough votes to rule these two key cities without having to include the radical socialists of the EFF or the formerly dominant ANC. They are among many South African municipalities where the ANC is likely to lose control in what is sure to be reflected upon as the country's watershed election, which ushered in an era of coalition politics. And with attention now on political parties forming coalitions, the ANC has said it is willing to work with any political party to form a stable government in the 52 municipalities with no outright majority. However, it has also made it clear that it is not desperate and will gladly be in opposition benches. The DA is looking for stable coalitions, but has generally ruled out the EFF from talks after the latter collapsed coalitions following the 2016 elections. The EFF has taken a more humble approach and called for egos to be set aside in the coming negotiations. Newcomer Action SA, however, says it won't work with ANC. And ESCOM CEO Andre Dureta has admitted that corruption is still rife at the power utility and that patronage networks still exist, saying it is clear that the networks created during the state capture years are still active. Commenting on why corruption is still happening under his watch, Dureta said that one man could not clean up the company. Dureta also said that incompetence and neglect by ESCOM staff is one of the primary reasons for the recent bout of load shedding. This included an operator at the Casilia power station ignoring a flashing light on a control panel that indicated a low oil level, which resulted in a power generation unit tripping. And now it's to Justin for the market report. Thanks, Nods. The JSC All Share Index was flat at 68,600. In the currency markets, the rand was stronger against all the major currencies to 15 rand 19 cents to the dollar, 20 rand 58 cents to the pound and 17 rand 56 cents to the euro. Gold is up at $1,792 an ounce. A Kruger rand will cost around 29,000 rand. Brent crude is trading at $84.30 a barrel, and the premier cryptocurrency will put you back 950,000 rand. In the financial news, MTN, the largest mobile operator in Africa, plans to proceed with a public offer to sell 575 million shares in its Nigerian business. The proceeds to sell shares will be done by way of a book bill to institutional investors and a fixed price to retail investors, the mobile operator said on Thursday when it released its quarterly trading update. The offer will open in November with a book bill to institutional investors, after which a fixed price will be announced for retail investors. The offer is expected to close in December. This will be the first step in our previously communicated statement of intent to sell down approximately 14% of MTN Group's current shareholding in MTN Nigeria, the company said in a statement on Thursday. This daily market report was made just for you by Brightrock, the first ever needs-matched life insurance that changes as your life changes. Today is Thursday, November 4th, and this is your FT News Briefing. 
The Federal Reserve finally said when it's going to start scaling back its pandemic bond buying program. The UK is turning to Qatar for its energy security. And Iran nuclear talks are back on the table. Plus, Argentina's in an economic crisis again. And this time, it's warned that it can't pay its next bill to the International Monetary Fund. A default to the IMF would be almost unprecedented. I mean, this has only ever happened very, very rarely with any country. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need. The Federal Reserve said it would start winding down its $120 billion a month bond buying program in a few months. The pandemic stimulus could wind down altogether by next June. I'm joined by the FT's U.S. economics editor, Colby Smith. Hey, Colby. Hi there. So how big is this moment, Colby? The Fed's you know, been talking about this for months. Um, I think it is a pretty momentous occasion, even though, as you rightly point out, it's something that we've uh, long been expecting. I mean, for the past, uh, I want to say, six months or so, the Fed has uh, really been trying to prepare markets in a way for this moment by trickling out, you know, meeting after meeting um, that they were inching closer to this decision even before we got to yesterday. The Fed had even um, stipulated and signaled in some way the pace at which it'd be winding down uh, these purchases. So it, it didn't leave much, you know, uh, to surprise investors yesterday. And uh, I think that's exactly the way in which the Fed wanted to go about doing this. But that being said, it is the first kind of substantive move towards tighter monetary policy for the central bank. Right. And in many ways, yesterday was kind of the opposite of what's called the taper tantrum. The S&P was up a little bit, you know, not a lot of market movement. Um, so, Colby, one of the big reasons the Fed is doing this is is to fight inflation. Uh, what's next on that front? So uh, this is just a first step in a broader kind of tightening process um, over time. Now, this decision came to be not just because of the higher inflation figures, but also because we've seen some important strides on the labor market front. But that being said, what Fed Chair Powell made quite explicit during his press conference yesterday was that they need to see quite a bit more improvement in the labor market recovery before uh, you know the Fed is going to feel comfortable to eventually raise interest rates, which is the direction that we are heading in at the moment. So I think the big question is how long the Fed can proceed with this process without having to start talking and thinking about when interest rates are going to have to rise. And that's a conversation that financial markets and investors have kind of started for the Fed. They've started pricing in interest rate increases as early as the third quarter of next year, which is right around the same time that the Fed's going to be wrapping up these asset purchases. Colby Smith is the FT's U.S. economics editor. As the UK and Europe struggle with an energy crisis, the FT reports that the UK has proposed a long-term arrangement with Qatar to ensure a stable source of liquid natural gas. Downing Street has denied requesting or securing additional gas from Qatar. It also says UK energy supplies remain secure through the winter. Qatar is the world's largest natural gas exporter. Most of its gas went to customers in Asia this year, but over the past two weeks, at least four large tankers have been rerouted to the UK. Argentina is in another economic crisis. Inflation is running at more than 50%. Dollars on the black market cost double what they do at the bank. And now a huge showdown is looming between Argentina and the International Monetary Fund. I'm joined by the FT's Michael Stott. He was just in Buenos Aires. Hey, Michael. Hello, Mark. Michael, how do you see the economic crisis affecting Argentinians? What does this economic crisis actually you know, look like? Yes, Mark. I think one of the most striking things is the number of people, particularly younger people, who are now leaving the country to find work abroad, who've just given up on the prospects of Argentina in the near term. What you also see in Buenos Aires is a lot of closed shops, 
you see business investment at a standstill. In fact, people are trying to get as much money out of the country as they can. The other thing you see, of course, is the way these price rises are working through the government's trying to control them with a price freeze. It's ordered that 1,400 prices of household items should be frozen until January to try to control inflation. But of course, this is something that's been tried many, many times before, not just in Argentina, but in other countries in the world. And it never works. As soon as the controls come off, of course, the prices just shoot back up again. But it's a kind of measure of the desperation to which the authorities are going in order to try to get things under control. Now, you spoke to the country's economic minister, Martin Guzman. What did he tell you about his current negotiations with the IMF? Yeah, so what's happening, Mark, is that Argentina owes the International Monetary Fund $45 billion. It's the biggest program the IMF has ever done for any country in the world. And this was money handed out under the previous president, Mauricio Macri. And the current government, which is a left-wing nationalist Peronist government, says that the loan was illegitimate. It should never have been made. It was made to finance, according to them, Macri's re-election campaign. And therefore, they want special terms for paying it back. And what did he tell you about his hopes for a deal with the IMF? Well, he wasn't willing to put a percentage chance on it. Uh, what he said to me was that uh, Argentina would get a deal if the IMF agreed to what Argentina was asking for. And I understand from people close to the process that while in public, both sides have been saying that they're talking constructively. In fact, privately, what they say is there's been no real progress in terms of technical negotiation on substantive issues. So the IMF is holding its position. What's the thinking on its part? Well, the IMF doesn't accept that the loan was illegitimate. It says the loan met all of its normal criteria. It was extended under normal procedures. But also, of course, they're thinking about precedents because this is a global organization. Its shareholders are all the countries of the world. And of course, they can't be seen to be doing a special deal for one country. So they want Argentina to follow the rules. Michael, what happens if there isn't an agreement by March? Are we looking at yet another default? Well, yes, Mark, this would be an even more serious one. So they defaulted uh, briefly on their debt to private creditors before reaching an agreement with them last year, which was, I think, their ninth default with private creditors. But a default to the IMF would be almost unprecedented. I mean, this has only ever happened very, very rarely with any country and, and usually only for a few days because you cut yourself off not just from the IMF, but from all sources of you know international funding organizations. So organizations like the World Bank, the American Development Bank wouldn't lend to a country that's in arrears to the IMF. And that's why it would be a huge step for Argentina to take. Michael Stott is the FT's Latin America editor. Thank you, Michael. Thank you, Mark. Negotiations to revive the Iran nuclear deal are back on. At the end of this month, November 29th, Iran will join China, France, Germany, Russia, and the UK in Vienna. The meeting will be chaired by the EU. The goal is to salvage diplomatic negotiations over the nuclear pact and to find a way for the U.S. to rejoin the agreement. This comes as concerns grow over the scale of Tehran's atomic activity. And before we go, another reminder that the FT is offering a 30-day free trial for our Moral Money newsletter. Moral Money covers the fast-growing world of socially and environmentally responsible business and investing. You can sign up for the trial at ft.com slash COP26podcast. Click on Get the Newsletter. We'll also have a link in the show notes. You can read more on all of these stories at FT.com. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back tomorrow for the latest business news. Well, we've got a new feature for you, um, courtesy of Gary Struble, the station manager and presenter at Nova FM, uh, which is one of the biggest radio stations in Namibia and one of our partners uh, in the Biz News Network. Every Thursday, Gary and I will have a little chat about the main news of the week, certainly as we see it, and uh, they put it together for broadcast on Nova. Of course, we'll also use it on the Power Hour. So let's catch up with this week's discussion.
Time now for the Biz News Wrap here on the Business Report on Nova 103.5. Hope you're enjoying the show so far. And if you haven't yet, then you'll certainly enjoy the next segment as we chat to Alec Hogg from Biz News in South Africa. The biggest stories on the platform over the last week or so. Alec, you and I have known each other many, many years, and it's wonderful to, to welcome you to uh, one of our radio stations here in Namibia. We do go back a long way, Gary, and I'm full of admiration for what you've done in the past and what you're doing in Namibia. So keep it going. We're happy to be your partners. Alec, uh, it's been a busy week, as it, uh, it inevitably is around the world, but certainly in, in our little part of the world, uh, a lot of big things happening. And on the platform today, I can only assume on business that over the last couple of days, the local municipal elections have taken precedence. Well, I've had a particular interest here because so many of my friends have migrated or semigrated from Johannesburg to Cape Town uh, because of the far better governance that one has in, in the Cape. So it's been something we've watched uh, closely as a as a company, but also for me personally, because this is where I live and where I have been for most of my life. It was fascinating to see the way that the ebbs and flows of the different votes as they came through. The IEC, that's the Independent Electoral Commission of South Africa, they've, uh, they did make a few missteps, and I could see that by going through the day and, and updating the figures. But I think they've done a fantastic job. They only had 42 days to organize this election. And uh, the real keys that have come out of it is the voter turnout is down, but, but kind of quantify that. Uh, in the 2016 local elections in South Africa, there were just over 15 million people who voted. The now official adjusted figures from the IEC says this time only 11.5 million. So it's down by a quarter, and that's had a predictable impact on the ANC. The DA on its side has been hammered by the emergence of new parties, and particularly here in Johannesburg by its former mayor of Johannesburg and DA mayor at the time, Herman Mashaba. He started a new party called Action SA, and they've taken 16% of the vote, which is a huge uh, impact for the first time round. And there have been a number of other little parties that have come up. The Freya Front has been a, an absolute uh, star of this election. They've trebled their share of the vote. It's only about 2.5% nationally, but they've, uh, they've actually doubled the number of people who voted for them. So it's interesting to see... Uh, the smaller parties, the African Christian Democratic Party, a new one called the Patriotic Alliance, all of them taking a few percentage here and there, and they could be kingmakers in various municipalities. It does look like coalition politics has arrived in South Africa in a big way. Of course, and it uh, it also bodes towards the next general election, which uh, in the South African system happens in an offset manner. Uh, so it's the trends to watch. Here in Namibia, we often peek over the wall at what's happening in our neighbours, and um, just from a, a Namibian point of view, where you know we, we have much the same um, sort of party structure that the ANC enjoyed for many for many years, uh, should Swapo be a little bit nervous about the trends emerging from South Africa? Undoubtedly, and if they look further north to what happened in Malawi first, and then in Zambia, where the uh, the incumbent parties, the Liberation parties, uh, were given the benefit of the doubt for decades and have no longer been given that benefit. So they've both been ejected in those two countries. And in South Africa, you can see the mighty ANC uh, doesn't have a single metro that it now, con- a major metro that it now controls. It's below 50% everywhere, which would, would, is inconceivable, uh, 10 years ago and doubtful just five years ago. So we have, we have these elections every five years. And then, as you said, in between, we have a national election every five years. So it's two and a half years to the next election, the next, uh, parliamentary election and on this form the ANC will lose uh, its majority in parliament and that's going to make uh, that's going to make it interesting well maturing democracies all around Africa uh, some uh, some more bad news on the cards for everyone this week and uh, I read a couple of stories on biz news about it were the fuel prices uh, here in Namibia we heavily reliant on um, importing goods from South Africa so the South African fuel price has a direct knock-on effect in terms of uh, food inflation here in Namibia, the question we wanted to ask is, is there hope and, and, and what is driving these drastic increases? Well, the major increases we've seen, the RAND has uh, fallen again. It's been bumping all over the place. It was only a few months ago, it was sitting at below 14 to the US dollar, around 13 Rand 80. Now it costs you almost 15 and a half Rand for a US dollar. That's the one thing. And then the other thing is that the oil price itself has been rocketing. 
that you might recall, in fact, went negative uh, during the worst of the pandemic. Of course, it was only uh, a technical issue, but uh, it really was down to $11, $12 a barrel, and now it's over $80 a barrel and not looking like it's going backwards at all. So as the world comes back on stream, uh, you have the crude oil price going up, the double whammy for South Africa is that the rand is weakening, and yes, we'll get to 20 rand per litre uh, in South Africa. Add, uh, on top of that is the fact that the government of South Africa, as it's been overspending, has been uh, increasing the tax uh, progressively on petrol. And now we're at a stage where the petrol, uh, a big slug of the petrol price, is made up by taxes. So even if the rand were to firm and the oil, crude oil price were to go down, because it's a, a, a useful um, pot from which the politicians can pull uh, additional and very easy taxes. They get it at the pump. Uh, I don't think we're going to have too much respite on that. It's uh, interesting to see in that context that in India, for the first time I've ever heard of anyway, the government there has recognized that the issue of the fuel tax is significant, and they've actually started cutting taxes on the fuel in that country to try and offset the impact of a higher crude oil price. But in South Africa, I doubt that that will happen. Then uh, just lastly, Alec, I know you've got a party to rush off to over the busy social life. The story that really caught my eye on business this week was uh, a very well-penned article around the the rise of Mauritius and and Mauritius's economy and what they've gotten right over the last two decades or so with some very particular policies. Um, I know you've also got uh, strong thoughts on on that, perhaps just talk to us about that story a little bit. Yeah, it's a, it's a heck of a party. It's another of our partners, uh, High FM, which is a, a, the Jewish station here in Johannesburg. We're celebrating its 13th uh, anniversary. It's Bar Mitzvah. So uh, that's it's, it's really a great celebration that uh, I'm just popping along to see how things are going there. As far as Mauritius is concerned, it's, uh, it's an eye-opener, and it's wonderful to have countries that have embraced uh, free enterprise and capitalism in the sense that they are – appealing to investors to come to Mauritius. In fact, the Mauritian government is sending out a delegation to South Africa. They've set themselves a target of getting 30,000 South Africans to migrate to Mauritius. Primarily, they're looking for entrepreneurs and for pensioners. And the reason that uh, they're doing this is because they realize that you bring in, say, an entrepreneur, you bring in someone who creates jobs and then adds to your tax base, and pensioners... They're at the end of their lives. If they can afford to emigrate to Mauritius, they certainly have enough in their back pockets. So these are people that make a massive contribution financially to a society. And we've seen the numbers. Uh, Mauritius has now gone ahead of South Africa on GDP per capita. And now that it's ahead of us, uh, it's unlikely, again, that uh, we will, in any certainly with the kind of policies that are being applied in this country, uh, have any opportunity of catching up to them now. Of course, it's a much smaller economy as well. And they are very wise. The The political approach that the Mauritians are taking is very wise in a broader context when they have a look at what they, they know what gets economies going. And when you're a developing country like Namibia or South Africa or indeed Mauritius, you're developing the whole context, the the, the, the the definition of developing means that you need money to come in so you can develop your country and you need money to come from abroad. And that's what they've managed to achieve very successfully, including uh, getting quite a lot of money coming to them from South Africans. Brilliant. Thanks. And uh, we, we hope the Namibian government taking notes as uh, Mauritius from uh, from the sidelines comes in and, and takes the wealth offshore, but on shore. Alec Hogg, Mazel Tov, and uh, enjoy the party. Thanks for chatting, and we'll talk again next week. I'm Justin Roberts of Biz News, and with me for today's Market Insights is CounterPoint's Pitfall Yun. The largest position in the CounterPoint Value Fund, MTN, up around 6% today. A reaction to an upbeat trading update, which was announced earlier today. What did the market like so much about that specific trading update? Well, I think the business is, is firing on all cylinders. Uh, revenue is growing. Uh, number of subscribers are growing. Uh, the margin are expanding. It's able to sell some non-core assets to reduce the debt. Um, things seem to be going better in Nigeria. In other words, it's uh, easier to, to, to um, get money out of the country there. 
So, so all the things people were worried about a year ago when MTN was trading at, I don't know, 40, 50, 60 rand a share, seem to have now, are, are in the process of being resolved, and the share price is reflecting that. Um, so, yeah, uh, it, it is a big position in the counterpoint value fund, uh, but we still think it has still, it still has some legs to go before it is uh, fully priced. It's not quite fully priced yet. Going further down the stock exchange news service, AfriMat announced half-year results today. Stock up 10%. Majority of its earnings produced from its iron ore operations. Is this becoming more and more of a pure commodity play, or is there more to AfriMat? Look, I mean, um, first of all, one has to say that AfriMat has that rare combination of fantastic operational management and also fantastic capital management. Uh, so they run all the business very well. Uh, very lean and at high margins, uh, but then they also take the cash flow that they generate from those businesses and invest them very well. So uh, they started out with some materials businesses um, and that sort of thing, and they took that cash flow and invested it into iron ore business probably about, I think it's four or five years ago now. And now the iron ore prices are having shot up in the past year to very high levels. Um, you know, they made uh, a lot of uh, a lot of super profits there. Uh, but they're using that to diversify into other um, mining, bulk mining assets. Uh, a year ago, they bought in Kumati, an anthracite coal mine. Um, that uh, under their management seems to have turned the corner and has started to become profitable. So there's that. And then they've also in, now invested into a manganese asset, which will take a year or two before it comes on stream. So it is much more diversified than just iron ore, just because the iron ore price is high over the past year that it looks like it's dominated by iron ore, but it actually has a very nice mix of businesses. And I think during the presentation, uh, Andres Marcel, the CEO, said that, you know, in about a year's time, they're going to have uh, they're gonna have materials, they're going to have coal or anthracite, they're going to have iron ore, uh, manganese, and other uh, uh, rare earth metals, uh, all contributing to the business uh, in a very much a diversified way. So. So no, it's not just the iron ore play, I don't think. And I think the market today uh, sort of saw that in that it is up 10% because there was this criticism that, yes, it's just the iron ore play and the iron ore price down from $240 uh, a ton down to $110 a ton. So, you know, it has to go down. But uh, I think it's much more than just the iron ore play. Sticking on commodities for now, although oil and gas, I'm not too sure if this is um, within your funds. I couldn't find it, but it may well be. Sasol, the share doesn't always move in parallel with Brent crude price. No, what are the no, other factors no, at play with Sasol? I think uh, the oil price is probably one of the uh, smaller factors these days because I think they've hedged out a lot of the oil price movements to protect their balance sheet from any downdraft in the oil price. Of course, Sasol is very famous for its poor pro-cyclical capital allocation, they've done it again here. Uh, because the balance sheet is under pressure, they had to hedge out the oil price just before the oil price ran up a lot. Uh, so I don't think they get much benefit from a higher oil price. Um, I think what is more important in their lives is the margins they make out of cracking, in other words, uh, refining uh, oil into, into plastic, other chemicals. Um, those margins play a much higher bigger role um, since they um, built the production facility in Louisiana and America. So, yeah, it's, it's unfortunately much less of an oil play these days than it is a, a chemicals play. Mark Carafani has announced his retirement in 2022. Another feature in the Counterpoint Value Fund is Anglo-American. What were your thoughts of him as a leader? And are you nervous, for lack of a better word, to see him go? Uh, no, I think uh, uh, the most important thing is that it's an internal succession. In other words, uh, somebody from Anglo-American is taking over and, and the person, I, I forget his surname now, um, South African guy who has experience across the broad range of Anglo's business in copper, uh, iron ore and, and other and strategic uh, interests. So, so he's been exposed to most of Anglo-American's operational businesses. Uh, and he's run many of them. So he's an experienced Anglo's insider, and that's always a good thing. So no, it doesn't make me nervous at all that uh, that Mark is leaving at this point, because um, I think uh, as succession planning goes, uh, I think they've done a very good job here. From a global finance perspective, all eyes have been on the Federal Reserve in the US with regards to tapering, interest rate hikes, and so on. 
when significant action is taken by the Fed, will that have a knock-on effect to the local equity market? Well, I, you know, those things are always fun to talk about, but who knows? Um, you, you know, uh, it, it might or it might not. It depends on uh, the environment at the time that it happens, because we're sitting here speculating that the Fed might or might not taper, and when they might or might not taper, and what will be the outcome. Uh, I, I, history has shown that, you know, with these sort of macro forecasts, you can get the forecast spot on and the market does something completely different, or you get your forecast completely wrong and the market does what you thought it was going to do. So, you know, I have no idea. The, the, the short answer is I have no idea what is going to happen in terms of the macro. And I also have no idea how the market will react to that. And I don't think it wants you to spend too much time thinking about those sort of things. I think time is much better spent on, you know, are the businesses uh, I own good businesses and are the share prices um, realistically reflecting the intrinsic value of those businesses? That's, that's a much better thing to spend time on. Alan Gray sold some Advertech shares over the last week or so without focusing on Advertech as a standalone and I understand the sector's importance. Yes. However, do you find the education sector on the JSC, do any of those companies catch your eye? Are they investable? They are. Um, uh, the Counterpoint Value Fund um, has held Agitech um, until very, very recently. Um, so we like the company. Uh, we think it's a very well-run business. Um, it's just that I think the current share price probably, um, and Alan Gray seems to share this thinking, um, the current share price is probably... Uh, well in excess of the intrinsic value of the business. But that's not to say it's a bad business. It's actually a good business with good management. It's just the share price is out of work with that. Um, as for Caro, you know, that's a bit more uncertain. I think they've spent a lot of money on assets and they still need to generate a return from those assets and that will take a while. So I, I think there the jury is still out. I, I think we need to see, uh, we need to see two, three, four years, uh, uh, how they're going to do before one can make a good judgment on whether the capital they've spent on building what they have there has been well spent and um, whether they can generate an economic return. Lastly, Pete, I was speaking to David Bacher from Korean Capital yesterday. He said that South African retail bonds are the most attractive South African assets out there. I know you're an equities manager and not a fixed income manager, but do you have any comments on that? Well, I, I do uh, manage a fund called the Counterpoint Worldwide Flexible Fund, which which invests in any asset class, equity bonds anywhere in the world. Uh, so I do look at South African bonds, and I think South African bonds are amongst the cheapest bonds in the world right now with yields. I, I think our 20-year yields are pushing 11% now with an underlying inflation rate of 5%, 6% real. Another 6% in excess of inflation is what you can get on long-dated South African bonds. I think that's, that's tremendously attractive. The only thing that's still keeping me in South African equities is that I think our equities are even cheaper than that. Um, but for the risk you're taking, you, in the equity market, you're taking more on more risk. Uh, in terms of bond market risk, I, you know, I think our long bonds stand out globally. I'm James Bull. I'm the global editor of the Bureau of Investigative Journalism. I'm very pleased to be joined by some of the Smokescreen team. Victoria Hollingsworth, who is a freelance investigative journalist and will be a very familiar voice to uh, many of you. Christy Giles, who is the editor of the Smokescreen and Bureau's Global Health Project, and Tom Wright of Novel, who produced the podcast. It's been quite an undertaking to do this story. It's hundreds of thousands of documents. It's been parts of this story have been told several times before, but sort of the whole beginning to end narrative and some of the twists along the way were very much new. Victoria, you were sort of on this project for the longest. What kind of drew you to this story and made you think there was more to be told? Oh, my gosh, where do I begin? I think, actually, I started looking at this topic and then I I remember calling Richard Cookson, who turns out, had, who, had, who I know had done the British American tobacco investigation for Panorama previously, said, oh, I'm kind of looking at this and um, what do you think? And he's like, well, I'm looking at this as well. So we both started thinking, well, maybe... Maybe there's something really here that, that hasn't been uncovered before. So I came to you, James, and I was like, I think uh, within these leaked documents, I think it was the, the trigger was these leaked documents that had been um, put on, on Twitter uh, anonymously initially. And so we started sort of digging through those and reading around it and realizing that a lot had been covered about these leaks, but really in a, hey, there's some leaks that have just appeared online. 
and you know an article here or there but nobody had really got them all together and really started to go through them and what really interested me and why I brought it to you was nobody had really picked up on the UK angle and the fact that a lot of these uh, document you know a lot of the documentation was relating to uh, the you know it been sort of sanctioned from the UK head office you know apparently so so it's like well hang on no one's really focused on this UK aspect and that's you know so relevant to us the fact that, that all these activities were, were driven from the UK so that was really what got me very interested because that hadn't been looked at before so yeah that's why I thought I think this I think there's going to be something here if we just keep keep on digging and that's sort of the classic thing with any kind of corporate scandal isn't it people try and fix it to oh well it's a few bad apples or it was just in that country and, you know, a lot of what happened in South Africa with Belinda, with the network of spies, with that sort of thing was quite well known. But as you say, this did go right back to BAT head office. And, you know, for people who might not have got all the way through the podcast gasp or uh, uh, sort of coming to it from here, how easily did it trace it back to the UK? Was it sort of one email one time or was there more US? <laughs> Yeah, well, that was the thing, because I think the way it had been reported on in, in South Africa was often through this dramatic lens of this this uh, femme fatale character, this this Belinda by and, and also very much focused around the relationship that she had had with uh, Johan van Lockenberg, who was you know running the investigation into the tobacco industry at the time and the huge controversy around that and the dramatic implications on the loss of uh, revenue to South Africa as a country, you know, huge story and massive importance. But I was interested in, you know, the reason Belinda was so pivotal to us in our investigation beyond what was happening in South Africa was because, you know, that very first meeting that she had with BAT was with somebody from the UK. They met together and he discussed how they were going to have this uh, relationship, how they were going to pay her in this fairly unorthodox way of untraceable allegedly untraceable travel x cards which is pretty unusual way to to get information in a in a you know open open way so it was like this seems a bit odd and why the uk flying to south africa and paying this central figure in these travel x cards so you know the link to to the uk was not exactly like a rabbit warren of links it was pretty direct you know although they had this separate private security company it was this sort of link between this central figure belinda and these really senior figures in the uk head office and i was just like totally intrigued by that relationship and what on earth they were getting out of that when we started to gather the documentation together it was just phenomenal. Like we weren't having to make um, assumptions around this because we actually we actually had the emails, we had you know the messages, we had you know it was very UK head office couldn't deny that that this relationship existed. You know they'd even written a letter confirming all the payments that they'd made to her. So it was pretty wonderful, really, to have all of this evidence fairly uh, early on into our relation into our investigation to go oh, there's the direct link to the UK and very high up in BAT. Yeah, as I say, this, we're really onto something here. And nobody had really looked at it from that perspective. Like, OK, who is sending these emails? Who's paying in these travel X cards? You know, the UK link was really um, obvious from early on. So it must have been a bit of a overfacing sort of first day where you got assigned to this project by uh, by novel and then just sort of get a huge barrage about kind of how South African private investigators operate, you know, how British American tobacco works, cooperation with law enforcement, you know, the role of JVL as the regulator and Belinda as quite a central character. Did you sort of, you know, find yourself going home and thinking, what on earth have I got into here? Well, I think, you know, even at its, in the simplest version of just Belinda's story, it's an incredibly complicated thing to try and get your head around. The fact that somebody could be working for a group of tobacco manufacturers and actually secretly working for their rivals in a relationship that was facilitated by the state intelligence agency. I mean, just as a sentence, that's a, that's a big one to try and get your head around. And so what I really tried to do was break it out into blocks. So I would try to think about Belinda's story and about how the, the kind of chronology of that, and also the different 
bits of material we had sort of laying out her story. Um, I think, you know, a really, really key document was the the draft affidavit that she didn't sign. But that was a, a really key document, I think, for kind of understanding her perspective and her side of the story. And then cross-referencing that against what are our interviewees who sort of intersect with her stories at various different points were telling us about about what had happened. So I think the really key thing was breaking it down into more more digestible chunks. So focusing on Belinda and then focusing on on Francois and the FSS relationship, and then finally the the Zimbabwe story, which I think really was the twist in the tale that none of us saw coming. Do you want to say a bit about what the Zimbabwe story is and sort of how we came across it? Because it wasn't something we particularly looked for, was it? No, I mean the way that the way that we found that story is is amazing, and the journalist who found it is a journalist called Alan Avram, who who works with the University of Bath, and he was the one who came across it. Um, but to back up for a moment, what what the story is is that FSS, who was the private security firm that that British American Tobacco contracted and acted as their kind of boots on the ground operation in South Africa, had started to expand their operation into Zimbabwe. And in so doing, they had they had fallen foul of the Mugabe regime and two of their contracted agents had ended up being arrested on what appeared to be trumped up charges and thrown in jail. A meeting was then organized with representatives of the Mugabe regime and FSS and a donation was put on the table of up to $500,000. We don't know if the money was paid, but we do know that shortly after the offer was put on the table, the agents were freed and FSS were allowed to continue operating in Zimbabwe. And the way that we came across this story is incredible because it was Alon at the University of Bath who found it. It was a document that someone at FSS had accidentally attached to the wrong email. So they'd meant to attach a different document about something completely unrelated and they'd accidentally attached a debriefing document that basically laid out the entire scheme. To view the full webinar, head over to Business TV on YouTube. How does business empower our nation? By bringing produce to our tables, giving us technology that connects us, hospitals that care for us, and the tools that shape our cities. And by backing the next generation of business owners. That's why South Africa banks on business. Business banks on us. Standard Bank. It can be. Standard Bank is an authorized financial services and registered credit provider. T's and C's apply. This is Linda van Tilburg for Biz News. An Israeli water tech company, Blue Green Water Technologies, has cleaned up a dam in the northwest province on the Malopo River, the Setumu Dam of the contaminated toxic algae blooms that was making its water unsafe to drink. It was basically a dead aquatic zone. Well, joining us is the South African Director of Blue Green Technologies, Jürgens van Lochenberg, to tell us about the project. Nina, the Setumu Dam project was a, a very big milestone in it for South Africa. With a big challenge that we have with all of the wastewater works in it that is... Um, run over capacity and also dysfunctional. They discharge quite a lot of effluent into our dam and river systems. And because of all of this pollution and the, the big load of organic material in it, uh, we've got a big challenge with cyanobacteria. So cyanobacteria is also known as blue-green algae. And what a lot of people don't know is that this is very toxic. So there's a lot of toxins in it being released by this um, little species in the water bodies. And um, that is quite challenging for us as humans because our conventional water treatment processes don't remove these toxins in it. So it was caused by effluent straight into the dam? Yeah, it's the, the leaching or it's all of the discharge from the wastewater works in it. And um, if you go and look at Setumo Dam, so Tumot Dam is a is an isolated dam that's mainly fed by two wastewater treatment works. And the problem is because of the low rainfall, the dam wall was built so that it overflows. And at this stage, in it, the, the dam wall can't overflow. The dam is relatively empty. So these nutrients just collect in the water. And the high concentration in it then causes the ideal environment and for the cyanobacteria to thrive in. 
So does it look green or, or how does the water look when it has toxic algae in it? That's not hyacinth. No. So if you imagine a bowl of green pea soup, I don't, don't think I can explain it better, but it's a thick scum of green matter in it on top of the water. You have a lot of fishermen and it's around the dam, you know, when they wade into the water, they actually leave a little trail of clear water behind as the scum in it moves away. So I've selected this specific dam to run the trial on because I think it's one of the worst polluted dams in it in the country. So tell us, what did you do? How did you manage to clean that? So the technology is very interesting. Where they developed this specific technology in, it, in Israel, they were challenged with the same problems that we have here in South Africa. Because it's a water-scarce country in it, they were relying on a lot of uh, recycled wastewater for their irrigation systems in it. And hence, they had a problem with the cyanobacteria. So while researching cyanobacteria, they found that if you put these cells under stress, they give off little chemical signals between the cells and they tell them that they're experiencing a discomfort and it's not a, a suitable environment. And the whole population then starts dying off. So it's uh, what they call a phenomenon programmed cell death. So it's not a chemical process? It is a little chemical process, but you use so little chemical that um, you, know, you don't have any traces in it of chemicals at the end. And um, it breaks up into water and oxygen. So it's a completely environmentally safe product to use. When I think of chemicals, I think what you do to your swimming pool, you know, you chuck it full of cookie yeah. and then it's, it's something acidic, you know. So I was thinking of that. The fact that you use such a little amount, that is just such an incredible process and that it's green. Yeah, it's amazing technology. And, um, you know, when... We wanted to prove the technology in South Africa. Every country is different and they want to see it work in their um, surroundings because, you know, they don't trust uh, um, trial papers in it from different countries. And that's one of the reasons we also picked Setumor Dam because we know it was one of the, the biggest challenges in it in South Africa. The results after we finished uh, with the treatment, you could literally see the bottom of the dam. It was phenomenal. And, and what did the residents say in the area? Did they come back and suddenly they've got a clean dam? The dam is situated a little bit outside of, of town and um, I can tell you about the, the residents and it's on the banks of the dam. Now that we went back, because we do some post monitoring as well, we caught one of the fishermen and we literally asked if we can interview him off a phone. And he had such an amazing story. He was telling us that every time before he entered the dam, he had to cover his whole body with Vaseline. Uh, the cyanobacteria also, uh, you know, they excrete different toxins in it. And um, one of them is a, is a dermatoxin that irritates the skin quite badly. And um, he said that he had to cover his whole body with this Vaseline. Then he could go into the dam. They've got little uh, floats and little tubes and, and, and half kayaks that they put out their fishing nets. And he says now he doesn't need to do that anymore. So he literally just walks into the water, takes his nets out there, and he says he get to pick the size of fish he wants to keep for his net <laughs> because there's abundance of fish as well. That's a heartwarming story, and that must be so nice for you. And your company did this pro bono. That's correct. You know, part of it was the trial effort uh, to prove to government that this technology actually works. And um, secondly, I think if you know my, the Muffy King area in it, each and every little mall has got more than two water shops on the corners. So they all distribute in that water because the water is a big issue in it in the area. So for the first time in it, the water produced, you could actually freely drink from the, the tap. Um, there's no more foul odors and tastes in it in the water. And um, it definitely complies to the SANS 241, which is our standards for drinking water quality. But that's not the only dam you've been working on. Um, the Rodeplot Dam is also one of your projects? Yeah, Rodeplot Dam, that project caught us off guard. It was a very quick execution in it uh, last year. We were contacted by Environmental Affairs, Forestry and Fisheries, 
and they were assisting the SA rowing team. So the the rowing community and it is is basically situated on the Rudaplot Dam because it's got these perfect conditions in it for rowing. And um it's also notorious. They've got wastewater treatment works in it flowing out into their water body. And um it's also notorious for the cyanobacteria. So at that point in it, uh SA row do water quality tests and they weren't allowed to go ahead with these it was a SA schools championships rowing competition because they couldn't expose the, the kids rowing in it to the cyanobacteria. So they were threatened that the competition would be closed off. And at that point, they asked us if we could come and intervene. We executed in a, I think it was in a, in a week's time that we had to launch, um, get product out to site, get the necessary permits because you can't just go and treat these big water bodies in it. You need to get permission from uh, water affairs and in environmental affairs. So we got all the permits in place and um, we executed the, the treatment, bringing down the cyanotoxins below the maximum threshold, which was allowable, and the competition could take place. So are you planning to do this to other dams in South Africa? Do you have a contract with water affairs or are they all pro bono contracts? No, so the investment was quite large and um, the investment made for this specific to, to showcase as well, it is a lot of money. And, you know, for us, we got quite a lot back from the specific project. We could build a case study to prove to the water boards in it that there's a, a huge capital savings on their treatment costs. So it makes their treatment costs more affordable. And through that, it's easy to tackle the cyanobacteria problem. The challenge that we had is that the dams all belong or it's responsibility of Department of Water Affairs. And then the operation of the water treatment works in it are with the, the local authorities like municipalities, water boards, etc. So because of this overlapping responsibility, you know, it's difficult in it to say who's got to take responsibility for the cleanup and who would then pay for such a project. So that, that is quite challenging still, and uh, we're working through that. The great thing to say is that we've got a solution to the problem, and uh, we can definitely address it. There's a lot of money being spent on Hyacinth. That's what I wanted to ask you about. It's a nuisance, and what people don't realize is that the cyanobacteria has got health implications. If you go and look at uh, countries like the USA, uh, as soon as they, they find the threshold in it being above a, a safe limit of cyanobacteria on their dams, they close the dam. They close it completely. So no water gets treated from there. Um, no people can access the water in it. And that's not the case in, in South Africa. So I think we've still got a long way to go for, you know, our institutions in it to realize what the health impacts are. Um, I think there was a, a, a TV program called Blanche which is well-known in South Africa, they reported twice on the toxicity in it on Hartebiesburg Dam. Yeah. So, you know, we've got quite a big challenge in it um, still up ahead. But for now, we focus on the smaller dams, all the irrigation dams in it on the farming sector. There's a lot of farmers with the same problem because of the nutrients of the uh, fertilization of their lands. Yeah. So that's what we do right now. Yeah, it seems like there's a big project if you can continue doing this. So you talked about the fisherman and the fact that he used Vaseline all over his body before going into the water. What are the implications, medical implications um, of this algae for, for humans and for animals? So it's good that you refer to it as algae. I think one needs to understand that uh, microcystis is the, the cyanobacteria and they excrete, it's a little organism as well. And they excrete all of these toxins, and there's a whole array of toxins. For instance, there's hepatoxins, neurotoxins, dermatoxins. And just to recall on a big event, I don't know if you were aware of all of the elephants that died in Botswana a couple of months ago. Yeah, we saw that. That is due to cyanobacteria. They've got a very big issue around these toxins, and there's a lot of studies in it that's, been, that's proven as well that a lot of these toxins in it are great causes of Alzheimer's disease as well. 
So to end off, you are an Israeli company and you are worldwide. Yeah, this is, it's a global company. Uh, we represent it in most of the countries, the, the big countries, China, US, Russia, and then obviously South Africa. We've just been awarded a, a massive award this year for the best upcoming technology and it's in water treatment. So what their research in it was about and how this is all rolled out to benefit people is amazing. And uh, that's what we've come to achieve. And the company has grown extensively and it's, you know, across the, the world. Well, thanks for being with us uh, this Thursday, the 4th of November, and indeed through the week. Tomorrow evening on Fine Music Radio, we've got Carrie's Corner with Carrie Adams, and then we'll be back, the Biz News team, same place, same time on Monday. Until then, cheerio. You've been listening to the Power Hour, brought to you by the team at Biz News.